All right. So thanks for, for coming back. I know uh, last week I mentioned that we were going to start a really long series on the book of Revelation, and you came back anyway. So, uh, you know, hats off to you for that. Uh, so I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. And uh, we're going to get into that in just a second. So a couple of... Several years ago, actually, when I was at my very first church, there was uh, there was this guy who attended the church, and I, w- I was just the youth minister at this at this particular church. And one of the things that this guy would do, this older gentleman, he would read a book. He he loved to read books, and what, and he would after reading the book, he would if he liked it, he would give it out to all the people he knew who worked in any sort of like like any pastor, or religious worker, anything like that. Like everybody needs to read these books, which I think is a really good impulse on on its face because it's like, hey, if, if you read a book and you like it, it's a good thing to want to share those books with you. The problem is all the books that this guy would read were like, the world is ending, and this is why. And so, um, and in fact, the, the very first time he ever gave me one of these books, it was in the year 2004, and that's important for a reason I'll get to in a second. But, uh, so he gave me this book, and he made me, pr- this is the very first time he'd ever given me a book, and I thought, like, anytime a member of the church, this is how naive I was, anytime a member of the church gives you a book, you have to read it, no matter what. I, I let go of that policy that day. And so, this uh, so this guy gives me this book, and he said he makes me pr- he like looks me in the eye, like promise me you'll read this. It's so important that you read this book. And so I, I did. I pr- and I, I feel like I fulfilled most of the like I read sixty pages, and then and then I sold it at half price books for like a nickel. And I feel like like I like they paid way too much money for that book. Like, but and, and so the whole idea of the book was if you take the Bible and you like look at certain parts of it and you like decode it. And like you, you begin to like, it's all, the whole thing's a puzzle. And if you take the puzzle and you like arrange the pieces in the right way. And I imagine like somewhere in this guy's house, there's like a bunch of index cards with red string, like connected to them. And it like, if you look at it the right way, it will tell you when the world will end. And this particular book argued that the world will end sometime before the year 2008. So here we are. And, uh, and the reasoning he gave, and this is why the year is important. He gave it to me in early 2004. And he said, if you look at this word and this word in the Bible, if you connect the two, it tells you definitively like, like completely, inarguably, that the two that the con- that the conflict that will initiate the end of all things will be a direct conflict between Yasser Arafat and George W. Bush, and so like six months after this guy gave me that book, Yasser Arafat died, which takes him off the board, I think, in terms of <laughs> whether or not he can participate in the end of the world, and um, and then a few years later, obviously, uh, Bush was no longer the president, and so like swing and a miss on that guy, and so I think later on, I haven't, I did not go back to look on this, but I, I think I had heard like this guy had later released a follow up book like in two thousand and nine that was like. Oh, Oh no, I forgot to carry the three. And so here's the, here's the new math on that. And so like for years, like for, for a long time, actually, and every time someone puts out a book like this, they always use the book of revelation always. Like if, if it's not like the main thing, it's like the next main thing. And so it's always like, I read the book of revelation and it tells you when the world is going to end. There's going to be like fire from the sky and people are going to like weird stuff's going to happen. And so, um, and, and it's always, by the way, it's always in the person's lifetime. Whoever's saying it, it's always like, it's going to happen while I'm alive. In fact, um, there was this pastor named William Miller who in the early 1800s, in the year specifically 1843 is when he said this. He said this in a sermon. He was preaching on the book of Revelation. This is what William Miller said before the Civil War. He said, desolating earthquakes, sweeping fires, distressing poverty, political profligacy. Did I butcher that word? Is that correct? Profligacy? Yeah, whatever. So, um, 
private bankruptcy and widespread immorality which abound in these last days obviously, obviously indicate that the Lord is returning immediately. He wrote that 200 years ago, or he said that out loud 200 years ago. And so again, swing and a miss. So like a long, like for a long time, people have been taking the book of Revelation. They've been saying like, okay, there's a code in there. And if you read the code correctly, it will tell you about like the end of the world. And so um, there's lots and lots of mass hysteria, religiously inspired mass hysteria that has risen as a result of people reading this book. And it creates lots of tension and lots of anxiety. In fact, I, uh, when I was telling, I told someone like several months ago that I was thinking about doing the series and um, it was somebody who goes to this church and it and what, when I told her this, she was, she was wearing a jacket and she like, it was like the room got colder and she took her jacket and she was like, really? And she, like, she, she like pulled the jacket tighter. Like I just like let a, a cold breeze sweep through the room. And so, because people have all kinds of baggage associated with this book. In fact, if you talk, and one of the things that we're trying to do at, at, with our church and, um, it is we're, we're trying to create space for people to sort of confront a lot of sort of the religious baggage that they've had to carry and begin asking questions about like, okay, where does this come from? And why, why does this put someone in a cold sweat? Why does this, you know, why is this the reason someone didn't go to church for five years or whatever? And so we've been sort of trying to figure out where all those things are. And for a lot of people, it has something to do with something that happens or someone, someone told them something about the book of Revelation. So for a lot of us, the book of Revelation is the thing that sort of, that was like the tipping point of like, okay, that's crazy, and I'm never going back. And so, uh, which is why we've titled this series A Relaxing Stroll Through the Book of Revelation. Um, because I think one of the things that we're trying to do is we're trying to kind of um, take the fear out of it a little bit and try and kind of reclaim it a bit in terms of, like, maybe maybe this is not the thing that we've always kind of assumed it, it was. Um, and I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll tell you, like, I've even, I've been working on this series for nearly a year. And so I, in that amount of time, I've gone from like, oh, there's some really beautiful, profound imagery here that I can't wait to talk about, all the way to, I don't want to do this. I've changed my mind. And like, like that happened like yesterday. And so because there's so much weird, there's weird stuff. And so the question becomes like, okay, should we confront this weird stuff? And how, is it, is it possible that we just totally, like, lost the plot on a lot of it? And um, because I, there, there is beauty and profound things. There are beauty and profound things happening in this book. And the question becomes, okay, if we peel back all of the layers and we, and we try and shed all of the baggage that a lot of us have been given, is there something new to be found in this thing? And is it possible that it's a lot more life-giving than we thought it was? So um, there's, a, there's a line from this uh, U2 documentary called Rattle and Hum where um, – thank you <laughs> – where um, – they're, they're about to play the song Helter Skelter, and, uh, and Bono says to the crowd, he says, uh, Charles Manson stole this song from the Beatles, and now we're stealing it back. And so, wow, yeah. <laughs> Somebody said it with me, like, yeah. Um, and so what I'm thinking here is, this has sort of been my mentality as, as in, in preparation for this, like, like the alarmists and fundamentalists and people who want to create mass hysteria have stolen this book, and now we're going to try and steal it back. And so that's kind of where we're going with this whole series that I don't even know how long it's going to take us to get through. Uh, we, we are, I will say we're going to start and stop along the way because it's a long one and, um, I need, I'm going to need to recharge my batteries a couple of times. And so, uh, there will be a t- every once in a while we'll, we'll kind of take a break and we'll, we'll jump back into it, but we're going to go for a little while, uh, for, for several weeks before we need to do that. I, and also I'll say, 
um, that there are going to be times when we hit, like there's, there's an image or a metaphor or something that shows up and I don't necessarily like dig into what that is. And it's, it's just, there's so much in there. There's so many, there's so much imagery and there's so many pictures. We, just, we, we cannot get to all of them. And so I'll do the best I can as we go, but there, there may come a point where you're like, wait a minute, what about the, the, this whole section? And I, it, it's just, it's not like I'm avoiding it. It's just like, we only have so much time. And, um, if you, and if you have questions about any of those things, please feel free to message me or come and find me after the service. I would love to get more into it. It's just sometimes some things end up on the cutting room floor, if that makes any sense. So um, anyway, all that said, those are all the disclaimers. So let's just jump in. Let's do this. So, <laughs> so um, in the book of Revelation, uh, in the, and by the way, the whole first chapter is on the back of your bulletin. In uh, chapter 1, we'll just start at the beginning. It says, The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Now, the word angel here, by the way, is the word messenger. And so a lot of times we're just talking about a messenger. A lot of times we're talking about some sort of other otherworldly being. And it's sometimes it's kind of hard to tell which is which. So just so you know. That's, that's, one, that's the very first example of like, Sometimes it's, it's one thing, sometimes it's another thing. And then it says, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Now, already in this opening passage, there's two phrases that we really need to lock in on. And the first one is the word blessed. And this word shows up two times here. Now, the word blessed, we had, and a year ago, if you were here, we did a whole series just on this word and this whole concept. In the Hebrew mind, the word blessed is not like you'll get lots of stuff or like your life will be lots, like super easy or something like that. The word blessed in the Hebrew mind is there is something going on that God is, is up to. And to be blessed is to be tuned in to what that is. To be blessed is to be more fully aware and fully present in the story that God is telling. And so it's not necessarily like, oh, your life will be easier. Life will be like, you'll get lots of money or whatever. It's no, you, you are, your eyes will be open and you will be more and more awake to what is going on. And so two times this writer says, blessed are those who encounter this, like what's about to happen here. And so in other words, if you, if you engage this material, your eyes will be open in all kinds of new ways. In fact, um, there's this writer named Eugene Peterson who, and if this is like interesting subject matter to you, I highly recommend his book, uh, reversed thunder. It's, it's actually footnoted on the bottom of your bulletin, but it's a, it, it's a really good, pretty simple exploration throughout, uh, through this book. But what he says um, in his book about Revelation, he says, if the, and by the way, the Revelation is written by a guy named John. That's important to understand this quote. But uh, it says, if the Revelation is not read as a poem, it is simply incomprehensible. The inability or the refusal to deal with St. John the Poet is responsible for most of the misreading, misinterpretation, and misuse of this book. Poetry is not the language of objective explanation, but the language of imagination. It makes an image of reality in such a way as to invite our participation in it. We do not have more information after we read a poem. We have more experience. And so what Peterson is saying is essentially he's echoing what John is saying in this opening line where he says, when we engage this and we engage it as, as like with our imaginations and with like a more fully aware thing of like what is going on, it will, it will give us some sort of new understanding and new experience. 
And so, which leads to the second phrase, which we need to lock in on, which is the word near, or it says the time is near. And you hear the word, the phrase, the time is near. And that sort of makes us think of like, oh, the guy with the sandwich board who stands outside the, the, the ball game telling you like that, like meteors are about to fall from the sky or something like that. Now the word near though, this is a huge misinterpretation because when it says the time is near, it's not saying like somewhere out there, the end of the world is happening. The time is near it can also be translated as the time is at hand. In other words, whatever is being talked about, it's, it's happening now. This is not something that's about to happen out in the future. It's within reach. It's something that we are all experiencing and encountering right now in this moment. The time is near is the time is happening. In fact, um, the wor- in fact, there are several different words that we probably need to get into. So let's, let's take a, a vocabulary break, if you, <laughs> if you, if you would. Um, like it, uh, another word that you see here is the word prophecy. The word prophecy often gets talked about in terms of like, oh, there's this thing that's going to, like you go to a fortune teller. The word prophecy, again, in the Hebrew mind, prophecy is not something's going to happen way out in the future. A prophecy is when someone enters into a situation and begins to declare difficult truth about that situation. So it's like if someone begins to speak truth to power, that is a prophetic act. So like if you've ever seen someone who like entered into a situation and say, and says something along the lines of like, okay, listen, the system is broken and this is why. And if we continue down this path, these are all the different consequences of us participating in a broken system. That is a prophetic act. And so, again, prophecy is not like, oh, something's going to happen way out in the future. It's, oh, no, it's happening now. There is something going on right now in this present time and to be aware and, and to be aware of it is to be blessed. And so we are opening our eyes to what is happening now. In fact, the word revelation, the title of the book is about something being revealed. Thank you. That's the, I realize like that's not a huge like, like plot twist here, but that's, that's what the word means. And so, and so what, what the writer is doing is he's revealing what is happening right now in the time that he's writing it. In fact, the, uh, the original title of this book is not Revelation. In the Greek, the original title of this, of this book is the word apocalypse. Because when this, when this book was trans, first translated into English, no one knew the word apocalypse because the X-Men hadn't happened yet. And so... <laughs> And so now, and so they, they changed it to the word revelation, which is just a synonym for apocalypse because the word apocalypse does not mean the end of the world, fire from the sky, whatever. It means a, a revealing of something that will add more understanding or knowledge or information or wisdom to the current situation, which is a much less compelling title of an X-Men movie. Because, I mean, and in fact, there's a, there's a movie coming out next month, right? X-Men, The Age of Apocalypse, which the train is certainly symbolizing. So the, um, so, but, and, and so like the title... X-Men, the age of greater wisdom and understanding is a lot less, that's gonna, you're going to sell a lot less tickets to that movie. And so it has become, we've kind of co this is probably one of the most misunderstood words in the entire English language, right? Because it isn't like doom and gloom. It is something is happening and let's open our eyes and see what it is. The whole thing, the whole book is about something is happening now. And if you open your eyes to what is happening now, you will be, your, your understanding will be, your, your understanding of what God is doing in the world will be enhanced. You will be blessed. You will participate in all kinds of new, beautiful ways. This is so different from what a lot of us, I think, have been told. And so let's get into sort of, and I've got a lot of information to sort of give you before we can really get into even talking about this at all. Because again, there's so much misunderstanding. I feel like we have to kind of unspool the, the, like the giant hairball that is like our, our current understanding of the book in order to even begin to talk about it. So take a look at verse nine. In verse nine, um, it says, I, John, 
your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because the word of God because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So this one sentence actually gives us a lot of insight as to like where this is coming from. So first of all, we already mentioned this book is being written by a guy named John. It's actually a letter. It's it's a letter that's being written to seven different churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So there are seven different cities where there are churches, and John is distributing this letter to those seven places. So it's going to a very specific group of people. And so he's writing, and he's writing from a Greek island called Patmos. So there's some discussion as to what, like, why, why is John on this island called Patmos? And the original, for a long time, people sort of assumed it was probably because he had been exiled there by the Roman Empire, because there's a lot of persecution. Like, persecution at this time in the Roman Empire is super intense, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But, uh, so, it, a lot of the, the church leaders and the, big, the main voices in the Christian movement are being, like, heavily targeted and persecuted by the Roman Empire. And John would have definitely been one of those guys. And so, the original theory is John's been sent to exile by the Roman Empire. Lately, though, most historians have been talking about, like, no, see, the thing is, John didn't have a lot of money, and he wasn't all that powerful, and so probably they would not, Rome would not have spent a lot of money sending him to a really beautiful Greek island. They would have just had him killed. And so, um, because that's a lot cheaper. And so, um, so the, the dominant theory now is that John probably was, like, he, he was, like, running for his life. So he was probably a fugitive. Either way, I mean, really, that's splitting hairs. So either way, the reason John is on this island is because of the persecution going on in this, in this time. And the letter, uh, and this is a letter, it's a long letter, but it's a letter. And it was, uh, it was probably written sometime around the year 95. And so, which tells you a lot about the world that's going on. So one of the things, again, this is a major, major thing. And you have to understand, first of all, you have to understand that it's written to seven cities. And in fact, uh, a lot of people would argue, myself included, that the more you understand about these seven cities, the easier it is to understand this book. So beginning next week, we're going to really look into, like, what exactly is going, what are the socioeconomic realities of these people and why is John writing to them? So if socioeconomic realities, like, you know, get, you, get your pulse going, come back next week. We're going to get into it. So, um, but, but one, of the, one of the common denominators is this whole thing is taking place within the Roman Empire or under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And Christian persecution at this time is, like, unprecedentedly bad. And when I say Christian persecution, I'm not talking like Kurt Cameron made a movie and nobody liked it. <laughs> and I'm not talking like a philosophy professor made a joke and then they made a movie about that. I'm not, I'm not you know what I mean? Like, I'm not talking, like, per- like, the fact that we can even call that persecution tells you how privileged and easy we've had it. Like, I'm ta- when I talk about persecution, I'm talking like people were being hunted and fed to lions. And so, um, in fact, there are two emperors that, uh, that make several like, subtle appearances throughout the book of Revelation to Roman emperor Caesars. And uh, the first one was a guy named Nero. And if you're a Christian, while Nero was in charge, your life was bad. In fact, uh, there was a time, at, at some point while Nero, Nero was in charge, of when he was uh, ruling Rome, there was a massive fire that devastated a, like, a big portion of the city of Rome. And a lot of historians argue that Nero probably started that fire himself. And, um, but obviously that's bad, that's bad politics. And so what Nero does is he begins to start like a rumor insisting that, no, the Christians tried to burn Rome down. And so what, you, what ended up happening all through the city of Rome is you had, be, beginning with Nero, but then all the Roman citizens begin to sort of buy into this idea that, oh, Christians are trying to burn down our homes and our businesses. They're trying to like burn the whole city. And so because of this thing that Nero said, like the whole city kind of turned against this whole religious group of people. So imagine, like thousands of years ago, 
there was this thing that happened. This one, I'm sorry, this, this one negative, I don't know why I apologize to the stool every time I trip over it. But this, this one, like this negative, like this really dark, violent thing happened. And someone decides to, to blame this one religious group of people. And so now the whole community has singled out the religious group of people. And now their whole goal is to get all these, like this one religion out of their community. Like that only happened thousands of years ago. That would never happen in the 21st century. So we've, we've come a long way, people. So, um, so anyway, that, that happened. And then also, um, one of the things that Nero was famous, I mean, we could talk all day about all the things that Nero did, but uh, one of the things that he was kind of famous for was that he would host these really massive, elaborate garden parties. And uh, what he would do when the sun would set on these garden parties is he would, like, post, uh, they would tie living Christians on stakes all throughout his massive garden. And then when the sun would set, they would light the Christians on fire as a way of lighting, of keeping the party lit. So again, we're talking about severe, violent persecution. And so that's one of the emperors that's mentioned. And then the other emperor that's mentioned, and uh, if this was actually written in the year 95, this is probably who was in charge at the time, was a guy named Domitian. Domitian also was pretty crazy, and he was pretty evil, and he was pretty violent. And actually, in like eight or nine weeks, we're going to do a whole day where we just talk about Domitian and like all the things that you find in the book of Revelation that are all about all the stuff that Domitian was doing. So get excited about that. So we're going we're gonna to have a whole day just devoted to Domitian. And so what you have is you have these two emperors who are both mentioned in this book as a way of talking about how like there's all kinds of pressure and oppression and violence that is happening to this group of people. These seven churches are un- not just like... Uh, on the Roman Empire level, but also each of these local cities has all kinds of their own kind of conflict, which, again, we're going to talk about as we kind of go forward. So there's lots and lots and lots of anxiety about what's going on here and why, like, why is it so hard to participate in this movement that's all about love and grace and hope and forgiveness? And so... um, So... Which leaves us with the question, so why is John writing this book and why is it so weird? And, um, and so let's take a look at some of the language he uses as he opens this letter. So look back at verse 3, where it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it. So it begins this language of, I, he's not trying to freak people out. I don't know where we get the idea that this book is supposed to be a scary, freaky kind of thing. I guess it's because like that's sort of the thing that we've hijacked it for. In fact, I um, I don't know if you saw, I, I posted that we were doing this series on Facebook a couple of days ago. And um, and I said, we're, we're going to try and take the fear out of this whole conversation about Revelation. And someone commented on that post, like, people should be afraid. And I was like, oh, you're the problem. Like, this is, that is not, a, like, and, and because that's, that's what people have been taught. And so, but it doesn't begin with... With like, be afraid. It begins with blessed. If you encounter this, you are blessed. You are open in all kinds of new ways. And then look at the very next verse where it says, in verse 4, it says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And so he begins with, you are blessed if you encounter this. And then he immediately steps into grace and peace. And we've talked a lot, actually, about grace and peace, about how grace is this notion of you are constantly receiving this beautiful gift that God is pouring into your life. That all of life is a gift. And to, and to have grace is to be constantly receiving this gift. And then peace comes from this Jewish idea of shalom, which is all things are as God created them to be. And so when the writers say grace and peace, they're talking about all of life is a gift. And we are in the process of, ha- of allowing things to be as God created them to be. So it's this beautiful blessing. So he begins with, you are blessed, and then he goes into grace and peace to you. 
And so, and by the way, if you had lived in a, in a society that was dominated by violence and control and fear, to have someone send you a letter that begins with grace and peace is actually a pretty beautiful thing. And so then in verse 5, the very next verse, he says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And so it goes from grace and peace, and it, and it steps into you are loved and you are freed. Which, by the way, if you've been living in this situation where the most powerful empire on the planet has been like trying to make your life miserable, and to have someone say to you, you are loved and you are free, this is a beautiful, fresh word of hope that they probably had not heard in a really really long time. And so this is not a be afraid and look out and like like build shelters and buy canned goods. This is <laughs> this is blessed and grace and peace and you are loved and you are free. This is this is good news to the people who would have received it. In fact, look at and, and we begin talking about some of the language. Look look at some of the, the symbols that we find here. In um in verse 12. Take a look at verse 12. It says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And the lampstands, by the way, these are symbolic of the seven churches that he's writing to. Because they're because the idea of the church is that it is some sort of like light in the darkness. And so it talks about there are seven golden lampstands, i.e., you seven churches that I'm writing to. And then in verse 13 it says, And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. And son of man, by the way, is a dom- was a thing that Jesus would often use to refer to himself. And so what is John saying here? He's saying, when I'm, as, I, as I begin to look at what's going on, I see that there are you seven churches, and you're kind of a light in the middle of the dark, and it gets pretty lonely out there, but Jesus stands with you. And so, and then, um, and then it says, and so it says, like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a gold sash around his chest. Now, which to us just sounds like weird imagery, but get this, at this time, Caesar was the most powerful person in the world. Caesar was known to wear, quite frequently, a robe with a gold sash. So this here is not just a random image. This is, all of a sudden, you're beginning to compare and contrast Jesus with Caesar. And so, which is pretty gutsy at this period in time when Domitian is in charge. And so, and then in verse... um, but yeah, jump down to verse 16. It says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. Which, again, sounds weird. Here's the thing, though. These two images are, are very, very specific. First of all, when it says he held seven stars in his hand. At, at, during the Roman Empire, one of the, one of the ways that we, you would circulate like, the propaganda about Caesar is that you would, every time a new emperor came into power, you would print new coins. And on the coins, you would have lots of images of Caesar basically wielding certain kinds of power. And so, because, again, the whole thing is about how powerful Caesar is and how, like, how dominant and world-conquering the empire is. And so all of your coins would possess images of Caesar. One of the images that you would find, you can Google this. On, if, you, if you go looking for old Roman coins from the, from the late first century, one of the common things you will find is an image of Caesar holding stars in his hands. 
And so what is it? So it begins to describe Jesus wearing the robe and the sash like Caesar holding the stars. In his, and this is about the power of heaven and earth. This is about ultimate power. And then it says, and a double-edged sword comes out of his mouth. Now, the double-edged sword was a very distinct, specific Roman instrument. This, this is a Roman, like most armies had like their own style of military weaponry. And the double-edged sword was a Roman weapon. And so it's about power. It's about the power of the Roman Empire. And so when it says Jesus has the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, what's that saying? It's saying this is a guy who, when he speaks, has more power than the entire Roman Empire. The whole thing is about subverting and critiquing the power of Caesar. Which, if you were, and to, again, to us, we read it, and it's like this is a super weird letter. To the people who originally received this, it would have been like, oh, my word, this guy is crazy. If, can you imagine what would have happened to someone who got caught carrying this letter? This is, this is treason language here. This is all about, like, you, like, we have been told that Caesar has all the power and that, that we have to do things that Caesar wants us to do because otherwise we're going to get crushed. And then John sends this letter and he's like, no, 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 no. Jesus stands, well, first of all, he starts with grace and peace and you are loved and you are free. And Caesar doesn't have nearly as much power as you think he does. The whole thing is a critique on the Roman Empire and all the power. So we have to keep in mind, this whole thing was written to real people in real situations by a real person, and they were all going through real problems. And so John is writing into this, and it's not like thousands of years from now something weird is going to happen, because why write that? Because they've got their own problems right now. So the only way this, this whole book makes any sense at all is if it has something to do with what's going on in the lives of the people now. And so this is about, listen, it looks like Caesar is running the show. And it looks like the the last word on your story is about suffering and pain and control. But if you look closer, if you open your eyes, if you become more aware of what is actually going on in the universe, then all of a sudden, the whole story is about how Caesar doesn't get the last word. And it's all about there's something new happening in the world. The revelation is the last word has not yet been spoken. In fact, uh, look at verse 18. In verse 18, it says... I am the, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, if you, if you check earlier in the book, who kills Jesus? Rome. So when Jesus, after the thing about the sash and, and the robe and the stars and the sword, at the end of it, Jesus is like, I died and now I'm alive again. What does that say about the power of the guy who killed you? If, if you were killed, thoroughly killed, by the most powerful empire in the world, and they did their very, very worst to you, and you're still alive, that makes you a very dangerous individual. And so, and so we have these words from Jesus, and the whole thing is Caesar doesn't have the power you think he does. And the, the pain and the control and the loss is not the final word in your story because Caesar, tried, Caesar did his very best to kill me, and I'm, and I'm still alive. The whole thing, the whole book is about the story isn't over yet. This is good news. The whole thing, this is not about fear or pain or control. This is good news to everybody who heard it. Because if it's not good news, then Jesus isn't a part of it. And so when you encounter this book and people want to make you afraid or feel some sort of like weird stuff's going to happen sometime in the, like the 23rd century or what, like, what's the point of that? Why send this out? The whole thing is not about that. It's about hope. It's about grace and peace. It's about blessed. If you open your eyes and see like the last word in your story isn't the pain, that's good news. And so when we encounter this book, 
we need to understand that we are encountering a fresh word of hope to a group of people who desperately needed it. And there always comes the point when you're writing a sermon where it's like, the, okay, what are the things that we all have to do? What are, what are, what are like the three, the three basic steps? So the five, the five easy steps to making your life whatever. Or, and, and so it's like, what, what, what do you need to tell people to do? And there's none of that in this first chapter. I mean, that, when he begins to talk individually to each of the churches, there's some things that he kind of corrects and instructs, but that's not here. He doesn't begin with that. He doesn't begin with any instructions at all because if you're writing to a group of people who, feel, who have been made to feel powerless and weak, and you start telling them things to do, that's not helpful. What does he do? How does he start the thing? He starts with, I understand that you have suffered. And I understand that Caesar feels like he's holding all the cards. But the thing is, keep going. Because there is hope, and there is grace, and there is love. You are free. I know it feels like you are oppressed, but you are free. And so, this is a fresh word of hope to people who needed it. So when we encounter this book... Maybe we need to begin asking questions about, in what parts of my life have I felt pressed down upon? Have I suffered? Am I grieving? Am I feeling overwhelmed? Am I feeling, have I been betrayed? Are there parts of like, my core identity that I feel like I'm losing because of all the other stuff that's going on? Like, is, is, is the person that God created me to be, is that person slipping through my fingers because I'm just trying to keep everything together? Do I have lots and lots of anxiety? Do I have, am I, like every time I, like I can't even sleep at night because of all the stuff I have to worry about. Are there, are there ways in which you feel like you're losing yourself? Are there ways in which you feel like you're not who God created you to be and it's killing you? Are there, are there things in your life that are, that feel so powerful and so overwhelming that you feel like there's nothing, like this is, this is going to be the thing that kind of ends the whole thing. And I think if that's where we are, then perhaps the book of Revelation is a fresh word of hope to those of us who need it most. I think one of the reasons we struggle with Revelation is because it's written to a group of people who have no power. And a lot of times we can't identify with that because all our, our whole, a lot of us, we spend so much time trying to hold on to and gain and, and continue to seek more and more power or we have privilege. And so it's hard, it's hard to identify with a group of people who've never had that. And so, but maybe in this moment, there are some things that you've got going on and you feel pretty powerless. And maybe the good news of Revelation is grace and peace. And you are loved and you are forgiven and you are free. Maybe the good news of Revelation is the pain and the struggle is not the last word that will be spoken about you. That there is more to the story. So keep going. So as we begin this really long exploration into this book, may we begin, as John begins, with grace and peace. May we begin with, you are loved and you are free. Because if we don't have that, then the whole rest of it doesn't make any sense anyway. It starts with grace and peace and love and freedom. And so maybe the whole idea of religion and God and all this stuff has only been oppressive to you. And it's only been a thing that you've been trying to avoid. And maybe it's because no one, no one ever told you about grace and peace. No one ever told you about love and mercy and freedom. And maybe that's where we need to start. And so may you hear the words of Jesus who says, the last word of your story has not been spoken. And there is grace here and there is peace here and there is love here. So for those of us who feel like we need to be freed from something, may we um, may we accept that we are free. For those of us who need to feel loved, may we accept that we are loved. For those of us who need peace, may we find peace in our, in our journey.
So um, may you experience grace and peace. May you, in your darkest moments, remember that the last word about you has not been spoken yet. And may you remember that you are loved and you are free. And that Caesar doesn't have the power that you think he does. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this relentless message of hope. For those of us who needed a fresh word of hope and joy and life, may we receive it. May, may something new be breathed into us. For those of us who are struggling, for those of us who are grieving, for those of us who have lost our faith, may we find love, may we find peace, may we find grace, may we find freedom. As we encounter this, this beautiful word that was sent to these seven churches who were struggling so deeply, May we find ourselves in their shoes and may we celebrate the new life that springs forth from that. May we realize that the last word about us has not been spoken. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.